there is a little bit of cachet from women who are eager and excited by the possibility of dating someone who's potentially sacrificing their life to defend the country. And so there is a little bit of status, romantic and otherwise, that comes with being a soldier, which, which makes sense. Jeff Stein is a reporter for The Post and just got back from Ukraine. While he was there, he talked with more than a dozen soldiers about what their love lives are like during the war. The idea of falling in love against the backdrop of war has been romanticized in countless books and movies. But Jeff says Ukrainian soldiers told him the reality can be a nightmare. What they really say is that it's extremely hard to be intimate. It's extremely hard to have the conversations, the prerequisites for intimacy in in the context of shelling and your friends dying and even the lower level stresses on the home front of losing electricity and air raids blaring every night. And what they say to me is that forming the kind of connections that are romantic and, and full of love are actually um, much more difficult when you're in survival mode. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Christina Quinn. It's Wednesday, January 4th. Today, how love and intimacy can be an act of protest against Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Okay, so you just got back from Kyiv. And could you paint a picture for us uh, what's going on over there in Kyiv? There's an ongoing war there. We get headlines about that every single day. But what have you found? To state the obvious, war has been an unbelievable crisis and tragedy for millions of people in the country, especially the soldiers who have to deal with daily bombardment and artillery shells that we haven't seen since really World War I and World War II. But, you know, life goes on in, in interesting and weird ways, and people have to live. And one essential part of life is love and romance and dating. And I wanted to dig in a little bit about how that had all been affected by all of the impacts of war. Yeah. And I was I was kind of surprised to read your reporting on, on love and romance in the trenches, because there have been so many other stories coming out of Ukraine about the fighting and the war itself. But can you elaborate why did you decide to write this story? I think, you know, when I was over there, I was really looking for topics that would be interesting to our readers back home and, and would resonate with them. And I think one thing that I sort of sense maybe in the in the ether is that the war in Ukraine may be horrible, and it is horrible, but there I think there's this kind of false mythology about war, and that's not really exclusive to the war in Ukraine, that we have this sort of existential malaise and sort of a sense of drifting and meaninglessness in the West, and we look at Ukraine and we look at our past in World War II and we have this sense of romantic mythologization of, of these eras. You know, uh, it's not just Hollywood, but it's a great example. You know, Atonement, Enemy at the Gates, where you have these really dramatic love stories that are, are elevated and amplified by the intensity and the emotional backdrop that's provided by war and death. And so I wanted to dig into whether, you know, is that true? Is that really what life is like? And... I think pretty convincingly I found and you know that preconception that that I had going into the story was was pretty um firmly blown up and I think that has brought repercussions and, and meanings for how we think about the war overall. And, and so under the you know within the backdrop of war how does this work for them? You know are they actually on apps like Tinder while they're in the trenches? <laughs> 
the answer to that question, I can bring you exclusive to the Washington Post, is that yes, I can confirm that soldiers do in fact use Tinder. Well, literally in the trenches, I've talked to a number who, who did so. And in particular, we talked to this one guy, Vlad, who I, I really like talking to. He's, um, you know, he showed us his his dating profile. He's, you know, took pride in, sh- in sending us a screenshot with his, like, record number of Tinder matches that he'd ever compiled, which was 1,238. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> quite, quite proud to get out there. Um, <laughs> what is so appealing about his profile? Could you describe? He's, he's a very handsome guy. Mm-hmm. He's got this kind of jet black hair and like a strong build and like a really like inviting smile. He does have in his dating profile now the fact that he's a soldier, that he fights in the gray zone, which for people who aren't familiar, the gray zone is the area sort of beyond the front lines, like where they send people beyond the trenches to do reconnaissance. It's like the most dangerous mission imaginable, essentially. Um, And Vlad was sort of fighting in the east near Kharkiv. Kharkiv is a city in in northeast Ukraine that was taken back by the Ukrainians this fall. Mm -hmm. And he had an upcoming break, I think three or four days. Um, So when he was, you know, in the trenches, he was looking forward to, you know, setting up some dates and hoping to have a hookup when he was in Kharkiv for those three days. So he was, you know, spending some downtime in the trenches doing that. But so the thing is, when when Vlad got to Kharkiv, um, he went on these dates. He had, I don't know, a dozen or whatever set up. But when he went on them, he he just found that he was not able to have really anything beyond the sort of extremely perfunctory, hello, how are you, salutations and greetings. And his his mental energy and stamina was just completely depleted by everything he'd been seeing for months. Did you talk to anyone who found that the risks of the war accelerated the intensity of relationships since there's less energy and space for small talk? There is definitely a sense of, you know, our lives could end at any moment and let's let's live for for today. I think that is a part of this. Um, I think it is a smaller part of it mm-hmm. than, than what we've been talking about. There are, you know, I quoted in the story a, a couple where, you know, They'd broken up because he wanted to go to school in Canada. And when the war started, they realized we love each other and this is really dumb for us to be apart just because we have these professional ambitions. And so they got married sort of really quickly after the war started. I think that that is a real thing. And I think the best comparison I can think of is for a lot of people, COVID kind of proved a catalyst for that here. You know, I know a lot of people who went through breakups or divorces or engagements. It seemed to like be an accelerant for all those things. And I think the war is sort of serving a similar purpose over there. That said, I think the the majority experience is for war to sort of lengthen the distance between partners. Of course, soldiers being the most obvious, but also 8 million or plus women have left the country and there's a huge um, gender imbalance in part because of that. But that's a lot of uh, moms and wives um, and girlfriends who who are now refugees in other countries. And for soldiers who, you know, are already at the front and they, you know, they get a few days off and their partners are in another country and it becomes extremely difficult to to see them. I talked to one, one guy we were... Um, in a coffee shop heading to, uh, you know, a place in the east, somewhat near the front um, uh, for an unrelated story. And just sort of struck up a conversation with this guy. And um, his name is uh, Yaroslav uh, Sachko. And he was telling me about his wife and children who were in Germany. They haven't seen each other for almost a year. They FaceTime every single night. But he acknowledged to me that 
he has a sort of nervousness about seeing her again. He's worried that maybe, you know, she won't connect with him the same way that they used to, both on an emotional and a physical level. And um, he gave me this quote that I really liked that, you know, we will need to learn each other again, which I thought was very poignant and, and quite sad. Yeah, that is sad. And I'm sure, too, a lot of combat veterans listening to this can relate to that. After coming back, you know, it takes a long time sometimes to recalibrate and to reconnect. There's actually apparently research about this, and um, Casey Taft, a professor at Boston University, uh, told my colleague Sam Schmidt that this is a a well-understood phenomenon that soldiers in war zones are trained by necessity to numb their feelings and dull their emotions. Mm. And when they get back, it can become very, very difficult to connect and sort of reintegrate into society, and that's an obvious sort of byproduct as well. What happened with Vlad on that date? What Vlad told us was that the dates ended abruptly and they ended kind of sadly. Like there really wasn't, he wasn't able to sustain them. They were over, I think, in a matter of minutes. And this is a guy who prided himself in really being kind of a ladies' man before the war started. And the act of being a soldier and being at the front lines has just made that the part that should be a relief and a and release from, from what he's going through, it kind of robbed him of that as well. And I think that that's quite sad. After the break, how the war has changed what's on the shelves at sex shops. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. What surprised me about your reporting on love lives in Ukraine is that sex shops are still open. I mean, they're not as busy as perhaps they used to be, but they're they're still quite busy. And I guess you would think that business would be on the decline, right? So our colleague Sam Schmidt had the great uh, insight to go interview people at sex shops. But, I mean, she did find that there were a lot of people there. And I think it's a testament to, um, you know, the perseverance and the will of the Ukrainian people that despite the psychological and emotional weight of the war, they recognize that this is a part of life. And if they neglect it completely, they'll be sort of giving in to what Russia wants. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you see that in in the number of people who are still going. And, you know, we had some silly kind of funny details about given the blackouts that people are buying glow-in-the-dark condoms and LED lights. And And also, but because there are fewer women in town, these shops have had to sort of change their inventory a little bit to reflect the the this shift, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like, <laughs> I, I like this story in part because I think it kind of, you know, you were so used to getting reports from the battlefield in the front, but, but the war is just so all-encompassing in how it affects just every facet of life there, particularly with the civilian attacks now. There are ways in which life goes on normally, but it, it's all kinds of things that you wouldn't expect to become more difficult become more difficult because of of what's happening. Because of those circumstances, love and intimacy can be acts of defiance. And, and can you tell me how that is the case, what you have seen in, in ways that Ukrainians have expressed their defiance through love and intimacy? 
it seems very counterintuitive that um, going to a sex shop could be uh, at all meaningfully construed as part of the uh, war against Russia. But I, th- I think there's a way to see it as that. You know, the Ukrainians had their lives completely bludgeoned. They've lost power and electricity and, and are in really difficult conditions. But preserving sort of affairs of the heart in amid this is a sign that they are not going to let the war prevent them from from falling in love and from enjoying life. And to have a trip to a sex shop and to buy glow-in-the-dark condoms is tongue-in-cheek and kind of funny, but it, it also speaks to this underlying reality that that Putin's attempt right now is to sort of strip Ukraine of, of enjoyment and pleasure. And so being in love and having sex is, is a form of defiance and an, an important one, I think, at least according to a lot of the people I spoke to there. Jeff Stein is a reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is produced by Jordan Marie Smith, mixed by Justin Garish, and edited by Lucy Perkins. I'm Christina Quinn. Thank you for letting me guest host. Alahe Azadi will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.